It's a collision of Nylons and Spornax in multiple ways. When Rose's daughter and Dorothy's son each come for a visit, everyone gets more than they bargained for. Will Michael and Bridget make it official? Will Rose and Dorothy make up? Will everyone in this house just grow up and move on? All of this and more in today's episode of Family Affair. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come While this is a fine episode, it's really one of the more archaic ones with everyone getting their panties in a bunch because of sex. Names are thrown around. Everyone is, well, just kind of awful. But, you know, there are like 19 planets that just got out of retrograde, so it seems fitting that we go visit the girls and have them act just as wild and chaotic as the rest of the world. Going into the house, we find a sneaky Sophia making her way from the hallway to the platters of food on the coffee table. Wearing tan pants, her pastel checkered top, and aquamarine cardigan, she's helping herself to the meats and cheeses. That is, until a multi-shade of cream-wearing Dorothy comes in from the kitchen and runs up to her like she's a baby about to eat a Tide Pod. In off-white pants, a light button-up shirt under what looks to be part of a blanket with fringe that maybe used to be white until it was washed with a single orange item— the only thing more upsetting than Dorothy's outfit is that Sophia is eating the food Rose prepared for her daughter. Dorothy has Sophia's sarcastic response come in when she sees her with the food and asks, What are you doing? Duh, it's called eating. As silly as the question is, Dorothy does have a point. That food was made by Rose for her daughter, a daughter that hasn't even arrived yet. It's just a little rude, Sophia. You'd think with how she treats food with all the seriousness and intensity of a branch of Catholicism, she would understand. Before Sophia can finish her argument of why she should be able to eat the food because there's so much there, the door opens and it's Blanche. Sort of. Hunched over in her cute little athleisure outfit of stretchy pants and a denim shirt cover, Blanche has put her back out, meaning the muscles in her back have been strained. Dorothy helps Blanche to the chair as Sophia helps by cracking jokes about how she didn't think Blanche's back would be the first thing to go. Concerned for her friend, Dorothy asks what happened. Well, Blanche had been at her aerobics class when she realized she was being hit on from across the room. When the devastatingly handsome man motioned for her number, she did the most ladylike thing she could think of. She rolled over and put her legs behind her head. You know, the usual way you try to ignore someone's advances. Before we can hear the end of Blanche's tale, there's a ringing at the door. Expecting Rose's daughter, Dorothy is delighted to see her son Michael on the other side of the door, whereas Coco was stunned. Just stunned. There were a lot of curls. <laughs> you all had a visceral reaction yeah. to his presence. All at once, Curl City. <laughs> and every time, there, there's a point later where he's revealed, 
And I was equally shocked, more so. I was more shocked than the first time I more saw him. More of his body equaled more shock. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with him. It's just like, it's a strong look that he has. Well, and maybe it's jarring in contrast to everybody else. Yeah, I think so. Because everybody is in like light colors. No one has really dark hair. Even Rose's daughter doesn't have dark yeah. hair. So he's like the only dark haired guy. And it's like, boom, in your face. Yeah. Maybe it's his masculinity or something, too. He's like oh, definitely yeah. a male. Right. He's putting off a lot of musk. <laughs> well, blowing his sacks everywhere. Oh, ooh. Just like his father, whether that was a production decision or not, Michael's looks are drastically different almost every time we see him in the series. Today's look is full-on Mr. Cotter 1970s street chic. A Canadian tuxedo of jeans and a jean jacket with a burgundy shirt complemented by his white man afro and hardy mustache. At the time of this episode, Michael, real name Scott Jacoby, was a 30-year-old newlywed actor. While his acting career was short-lived, Hold on to your butts because here come some fun facts. Acting-wise, Scott is best known, of course, for his multiple appearances as Michael. But he was also in To Die For, Return to Horror High, Murder, She Wrote, Trapper John M.D., The Diary of Anne Frank, and One Life to Live. If the last name of Jacoby sounds familiar, that's because his little brother Billy Jacoby played Blanche's grandson in the season one episode on Golden Girls. Scott is also an award winner, landing the Primetime Emmy for his outstanding supporting acting role in That Certain Summer. Speaking of Jacoby, when I was growing up in Los Angeles, there was a commercial for a lawyer on TV called Jacoby and Meyer. And that's just conjuring this like very bland looking attorney's face every time (laughs) I hear the name. Did they have like a jingle for their phone number? If they did, you're hearing it right now. And if not, we'll just have to move on and pretend that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. If you take an experienced, knowledgeable lawyer and take away his expensive office and fancy trimmings, limit him to a $25 consultation fee, and make him give you a written estimate of the fees up front, and take away the legal mumbo-jumbo and make him explain your case in plain, simple English, Yeah, I got it. what have you got left? Uh, yeah. An experienced, knowledgeable lawyer. Okay, I'll keep you informed. Jacoby and Myers. Bye-bye. Now you can take advantage of a lawyer. Jacoby and Myers. It's about time. Overjoyed at the surprise visit, Dorothy is nearly introducing her own son to his own grandmother, screeching to Sophia, Look, it's Michael! That is until the excitement wears off, and she tells him he's ungrateful because he hasn't written. Coming to the defense of her busy, important musician grandson is Sophia who, the second she's done defending him from Dorothy, starts to berate him herself for not calling. The hard feelings pass quickly, and everyone gives their hugs and kisses. That is, except for Blanche, who can only offer her hand like she's the Pope, before she starts to give her explanation as to why she can't give him a proper introduction. As we half expect Dorothy to cut her off to save her child from the graphic details, it's actually Michael who does the cutting, saying, No worries, Mom filled me in on you. The reason Michael's visit was unexpected was because his job had ended early. Mm-hmm. And he just wanted to stop by. Nothing too formal or exciting. Well, not according to Sophia, though. It is exciting that as a child in Brooklyn, he was the only white kid that could scat. While this isn't an oh boy, it's kind of a be careful now, don't go appropriating scat from the black community that created it as part of jazz. 
As excited as Dorothy is to have her son there, she's confused as to why, since he was under contract and should still be working. Well, about that. Michael explains he and the owner had some artistic differences. While Sophia gasses Michael up to Blanche, assuming he must have been just too talented as usual and people started to get jealous, Michael shares the real reason he's out of work. Without any hint of, this is silly, but... He proudly proclaims he quit because his boss wanted him to wear a tie. What a hill to die on. Although, I can relate a little bit. I was a junior sheriff a long time ago, and by my second year, things were getting more serious and I got a uniform, one that they got mad at me once for not ironing. I was like, yeah, well, I didn't join the military, so that's not happening. In the same way Michael bravely stood up for his beliefs of a tireless work environment, so did Norma Ray. Norma Ray is the 1979 film about union organizing starring Sally Field based on the true story of Crystal Lee Sutton. Working in unsafe and unhealthy conditions, she fought against the pressure of her bosses to help form a union to protect all the workers. Sally Field not only famously won an Oscar for being liked, but in the film iconically stood on a table holding a cardboard sign that simply read, Union. You know, the hard work and high pressure, just like what Michael put into his jazz gig. Well, hello, Ellen. Ellen Burstyn. Bursting through the front door is Rose in a dress the color of her name with some black accents of buttons and stripes. Behind her is a walking pile of hair. Oh, I'm sorry. It's her daughter, Bridget. Sporting a tan, knee-length skirt, a matching oversized blazer, and a pink shirt. Her hair is mine if I were to blow-dry it. Just large. Her whole look appears to be inspired by the new line by LaCroix, just a whisper of color or anything interesting, really. Starting her acting career as a teenager in the 60s, the actress playing Bridget is Marilyn Jones. She hasn't acted since 94, and she didn't have a ton of credits, but what she did act in were big shows, like Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, Quantum Leap, Perry Mason, Highway to Heaven, Jake and the Fat Man, Moonlighting, MacGyver, St. Elsewhere, Twilight Zone, Tales from the Dark Side, Magnum P.I., Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, and M.A.S.H., I'm guessing this was the same casting director as Dear Evan Hansen, seeing as the early 20-something Bridget was being played by 34-year-old Marilyn. Either way, she's cute as a button. Making her way through the room giving introductions, Rose points out all the girls, but hits a wall when she gets to the stranger on the couch known as Michael's Bornack. Dorothy completes the introductions, adding he's going to be staying with them. But he knows they don't have the room. Okay, they have the room. They could fit four rollaway cots in each of their bedrooms, but they don't have the beds. Never fear, our injured Blanche is here to save the day. She'll stay on the couch, and Michael can have her room. It's pretty clear right away there might be some tension between the two kids. She looks clean and refined. He looks like he woke up on the floor of his jazz club. So when he makes a joke about how it's good she found a nice place to live in England while she attends school at Oxford because the commute is a killer... It's not surprising the joke doesn't land. Maybe she's just, you know, a St. Olafian. But Michael's right. The commute from Minnesota to England would be killer. Oxford University is indeed a prestigious and elite school. There is documentation showing education starting there in the thousands, making it the second oldest university and the oldest English-speaking university. The average acceptance rate is only about 17%. They are consistently ranked in the top 10 universities in the world with an average tuition rate of about 10000 a year. Michael isn't the most lovable guy. 
He's self-centered, egotistical, always wants things his own way. But here I have to agree with him. I, too, attended the School of Life as college wasn't my style. The return on investment is pathetic. It's a societal norm that I hope has two major changes. One, it becomes free for public or community colleges. And two, becomes passe. No one should be seen as a lesser person because they didn't have the means or interest in one certain thing. After hearing Michael's reasoning, Bitched, I mean Bridget, responds with snark, saying he must not have been accepted anywhere. That's why he chose the school of hard knocks. But at that moment, you aren't really sure if they're going to slap each other or kiss each other. Excited to show off her culinary welcome to her daughter, Rose makes her way to the coffee table, the scene of Sophia's earlier transgressions. That's when she discovers the wooden shoes she carved out of cheese have been spread on a Triscuit windmill by Sophia. Rose's character has decided to welcome her daughter with wooden shoes and windmills, decor normally associated with Holland, the greatest named country, also known as the Netherlands. Those are not Scandinavian or Nordic icons. The Netherlands are actually considered to be too far south to be Nordic, although it is frequently clumped in. Maybe that seemed the most St. Olafian since there aren't really cultural mementos for the Norwegian Lutherans that settled in and founded St. Olaf. Rose is devastated, but everyone quickly moves on. As someone who lived with their 85-year-old grandfather, I can tell you sometimes it was like having a puppy around. If I left food out on the table or snacks, you better believe he would find them. Usually when I was making my way into the kitchen to go get them, he'd be walking out with a mouthful. It's a new dawn, a new day, and Michael is feeling good. After the breakfast his mother made for him and Sophia. Although Sophia outs her, saying that when Michael isn't there, it's usually a breakfast of black bananas and lumpy oatmeal. An actual nightmare meal. Sitting around the table, Sophia in her blue checkered dress, complemented nicely with a red cardigan, Michael in jeans and a yellow sweater, which fits terribly so his light blue undershirt sticks out, and Dorothy. Poor, poor Dorothy. She's been put in khakis and a white button-up, a gray tie, and a pink sweater vest? It's the largest in history, I'm quite sure of that. Just miles of yarn to make this light pink square vest. It is so ugly. A Gen Zer on TikTok is probably wearing it right now. Lord help us. As appreciative of the breakfast as Michael is, Dorothy is equally happy to get to take care of him, cooking and cleaning up. So Sophia adds to her joy by giving her her dishes to clean as well. I'm guessing one of Dorothy's love languages is acts of service. Hunching her way through the kitchen door is a still-out-of-commission Blanche wearing light gray or beige pants with a cute black-and-white sweater that is part houndstooth, part cave painting of a horse, and could be used as a background for a Max Headroom video from the 80s. With her back hurting so bad, Blanche went to the doctor to get a diagnosis, and that diagnosis was too sexy for her own good. It was actually that she had a back problem, but in addition, her body is as spectacular as Julie Newmar's. I don't think I realized just how culturally important the Batman series from the 60s was. Before she was thanking Wong Fu for everything, Julie Newmar was the original Catwoman on the Batman series. Working as recently as 2017 as the voice of Catwoman in the newest animated installment of Batman, Julie has been breaking hearts in her skin-tight catsuit for over 50 years. 
Besides her feline fame, Julie has also had roles in Fantasy Island, Chips, The Love Boat, Bionic Woman, Columbo, Bewitched, Get Smart, Star Trek, The Monkees, Beverly Hillbillies, Twilight Zone, The Marriage Go Round, which was her Golden Globe-nominated performance in the film adaptation of the play she had previously won a Tony for, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Besides her acting and admired figure, Julie was an inventor, getting two patents for undergarments, one for a bra and one for a type of pantyhose. She never liked what traditional pantyhose did to her butt, so she created a pair that had a special seam on the backside separating the butt cheeks. I think it's supposed to maybe make your butt look bigger or fuller, or maybe she just wanted to be able to pass gas at formal events. While Blanche might not have the body of Julie, they do have something else in common, a gay brother. This relationship led Julie to become an advocate for LGBTQIA rights, even earning herself a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Gay and Lesbian Elder Housing Organization in 2013. Nowadays, Julie is at home, raising her son, who has Down syndrome, and is appreciating the smaller things in life, like the divine garden she's created for her and her son to be able to take time and center themselves in the peace of nature. Now in her 80s, she's not slowing down, as heard in this interview she did in 2019 with the Los Angeles Times. If I get too stressed out, I come out here, I come to the garden, just breathing, walking around, and you see what nature has given us and what we come from. It's the only way to get old like me. I'm 86, I've added a year. You want to be 86 and happy. You want to be 86 and, and lusting for new things. I would advise people just to sit down in the grass and stay still of 10 minutes and just allow yourself to see what's happening around you. You'll notice things that you've never seen in life and you'll connect to the essence of life itself because this is real. I went to see Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar in the theater nice with my dad okay <laughs> and he was confused i believe i would imagine so did he know what you were taking him to i believe i explained it and he was like fine can you give if there's anyone listening that maybe doesn't know the movie it's patrick swayze john leguizamo wesley snipes wesley snipes and they're all drag queens right so yeah, there's th yeah, three drag queens going on some sort of road trip for some reason and it's sort of a wacky comedy and then i feel like, do they put on a production or something somewhere maybe? I don't know. It's a pretty fun movie, I think. Kind of any, uneven. Um, my dad, cool guy, was cool to see pretty much any movie I wanted to. <laughs> and that led us down some paths that were probably foreign to him. Right. You Quite were educating foreign. him. I was. You were opening his world into, you know, a bigger spectrum of what life could be. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, drag queens, totally rad. <laughs> Great. Blanche's treatment plan for the back, not the sexy body, is to take a week of rest with no physical activity, wearing a brace or a corset, as she put it, and to stay on her back with her legs elevated. I'm not sure if that's a real treatment, but it shouldn't be too hard for Blanche to do. She loves that position. 
Still sitting at the table with her friend's mother and son, Blanche goes on about how she won't be able to abstain from physical activity for a whole week, just like when she was 16 and she had her urges. Seeing as the average sexual peak for a female is between 27 and 45, and seeing as Blanche's age has been hidden by the governor, we may never know if she really is in her peak. Either way, if she's horny, she horny. As Dorothy tries to stop Blanche from her shockingly vulgar conversation about women enjoying sex, Michael stands up for himself. I can hear this. I'm an adult. Please don't baby me. But Dorothy pushes back. I don't baby you. But if you're trying to prove to your child that you aren't treating them like a child, maybe don't tell them to take their elderly grandmother to see a Disney movie about the Great Depression, a little girl, and her pet wolf because that's what Dorothy recommended when telling Michael to take Sophia to see The Journey of Natty Gann, a 1985 film starring John Cusack, Scatman Crothers, Ray Wise, and Lainey Kazan. A young girl, separated from her father, begins a cross-country trek to find him. Is that a friend of yours? We're traveling. It's hard enough without packing a dog. He's a wolf. It's even better. Meredith Salinger and John Cusack. Coco, you have a special place in your heart for this movie. This is a family favorite when I was very young. I, I don't know if we recorded it off of TV, but it was watched many times in the home with me and my sister. I had a huge crush on Meredith Salinger, who's the star, and I had no idea John Cusack was in it until today. I, I had no concept of that. And I think she's on some sort of cross-country journey to find her father who's been working away and she has to go get to him for some reason. That's what I gathered from the trailer, because I literally only knew the movie from this episode of Golden Girls. It was the only time I'd heard of it. Fun fact, Meredith Salinger is now married to, still an actor and everything, but also married to Patton Oswalt. Oh. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because she's, cool. she's like a comedy writer now or something, right? I don't know. Oh, okay, cool. But she's uh, that is terrific a fun... in her own right and also his spouse. So that's cool. That's a fun fact. Yeah. Before Michael can formally reject the money, Sophia is on board and whisks him away, but not before coming up with a better plan. They'll turn their 10 bucks into 20 bucks at the racetrack. Then they'll use the money to get a nice lunch and oh boy. They'll turn their 10 bucks into 20 bucks at the racetrack. Then they'll use the money to have a nice lunch and oh boy. Goof on some bums. I guess meaning prank houseless folks? Yikes, Sophia. We need to talk about what you enjoy in your free time. The pair of gamblers gone, Blanche compliments Dorothy on her nice son, while Dorothy looks to be pouring her coffee into her orange juice. It's just a weird angle with the glasses, but at first I was like, what the actual F is she doing? Dorothy appreciates the compliments, but because of Michael's flighty personality, she's always worried about him. Flighty simply means someone who is fickle or irresponsible. A floozy, as Blanche's grandmother called her, is just a gal that gets around. And yes, in the dictionary, floozy is directed at women only. Flighty or floozy, Blanche can relate to Dorothy's concerns, but she serves as a perfect example of why she shouldn't worry. He'll turn out just fine. When Rose comes in, Dorothy offers her some of the breakfast she made for the family. But Rose is stuffed. She spent the morning with Bridget, where they drove through the country, picked flowers, and had a picnic breakfast. And yes, there is a countryside in Miami. 
I sarcastically Googled it and found the Redland Trail. It is located between the Everglades and the Biscayne National Parks. It looks stunning and tropical, so it's not exactly the rolling hills of a green pasture, but it is the country for Florida. Spending the morning in what sounds like a romantic comedy hippie dreamland or the iconic scene from Sound of Music with Julie Andrews, Dorothy can't help but sarcastically say they fed deer out of their hand like a Disney princess and sang, If I Had a Hammer. If I Had a Hammer was a song written in 1949 as a protest song for the progressive movement. First recorded and released by the group The Weavers, funny enough it was on Hootenanny Records. Maybe Big Daddy could get a record deal there. The first time the song was performed live, it was at a dinner for the leaders of the Communist Party of the U.S. Eventually, the song transformed into an anthem for the civil rights movement of the 60s, especially once it was performed by folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary. Besides PPM, the song has been covered by Martha and the Vandellas, Sam Cooke, Leonard Nimoy, June and Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen, and it was a number three hit for Trini Lopez. Between Julie Andrews' Pollyanna persona and the let's all hold hands and sing a song vibe of If I Had a Hammer, it's not surprising those were mentioned as complimentary additions to the sappy morning the Nyland ladies had. If I had a hammer, I'd a hammer in the morning, I'd a hammer in the evening, As much fun as they had, Rose feels bittersweet about it as it only served as a reminder of how much she'll miss her daughter when she's away for school. Although they already live pretty far apart, so it shouldn't be too much different. Relating to Rose's feelings, Dorothy shares that she and Michael are equally close but struggle with their differences. She wants him to fall into the societal norms and expectations of settling down. Maybe get married, have some kids, get a job he hates. You know, America. How dare he spend his youth seeing the world, expanding his horizons, and better understanding himself before burdening a wife and children with his unprocessed feelings. This gives Blanche an idea. Michael just needs some exposure. Before Blanche can go into more detail, Rose asks, to what? Which, of course, is met with the smart-ass response from Dorothy of plutonium. Plutonium is a radioactive chemical agent, and that Google definition is about as far as I can go with it, except to say it's dangerous if inhaled, where it can latch onto your lungs, killing the tissue and causing cancer. It's also my understanding it can help you time travel. Did you rip that off? Of course, from a group of Libyan nationalists. They wanted me to build them a bomb, so I took their plutonium and in turn gave them a shiny bomb casing full of used pinball machine parts. Come on, let's get you a radiation suit. Blanche gets the girls back on track. Why doesn't Michael spend a little bit of time with Bridget, someone who is on the path his mother wishes he would follow? Perhaps he'd feel inspired to lead that type of life. Classic Blanche. Solve it with a date. The idiom of you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink has been around since the 1100s and was featured in the 1546 proverb collection of John Haywood. It means you can provide someone with all of the opportunities but you can't force them to do it if they don't want. Good examples would be exercising, quitting smoking, or everything a teenager does. Fun facts, fish survival out of water varies dramatically, and I'm sorry I couldn't find herring-specific numbers for rows, but some fish die within seconds, some can last minutes or even hours. Then there's the mangrove rivulus, a fish that was recorded living a mind-boggling 66 days out of water. The average time a fish can live falls around half an hour, but they are suffering when you do that, so if you insist on tricking and killing, I mean fishing, 
then please put it out of its misery right away. Don't think it's out of water so it dies at the rate humans do in water. Thank you. Having her idea shot down, Blanche hunches her way to the door while landing the successful burn of, Oh, I'm sorry. I thought these youngsters would enjoy themselves more if they went out together instead of hanging out at the house with me and three old ladies. Ouch. Standing up from the table in her lavender pant and top set with a floral undershirt, Rose is off to change before heading to the fabric store with Bridget. A not-often-seen sitting-in-the-chair-closest-to-the-stove Dorothy reminds Rose to take a tranquilizer as to not repeat her hyperventilation episode from the last time. Rose scoffs at Dorothy's suggestion. Psh! That never happened. When I hyperventilated, that was at the World of Wool, of course. It's later in the evening, and an Asian floral-inspired silk robe with a nude nighty wearing Blanche is making her way slowly from the hall to the couch to join red housecoat-wearing Sophia and all-white ensemble with a purple robe jacket thing Dorothy, who are both playing cards. Blanche just can't believe it. Her body, for the first time, is feeling old, like she won't be able to do the things she used to. According to Sophia, Rubber Woman couldn't do the things she used to. Thanks to the abomination known as American Horror Stories, every search for Rubber Woman came up with that. So I can only assume there was an old show or movie, maybe book, that had a Rubber Woman doing moves that only Blanche and the mom from The Invisibles could do. Consoling her friend, Dorothy simply points out the reality of the situation. Our bodies are changing, and that's part of growing older. Sophia, feeling her daughter was too delicate in her wording, corrects her. It doesn't change. It falls apart. But Dorothy won't hear such nonsense. To make her point, Sophia gives an example. I used to have a body like Cheetah Rivera. Then one day, boom, my butt looked like a bulldog's neck. While Cheetah Rivera has some filmography credits, such as The Outer Limits, One Life to Live, The Carol Burnett Show, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Dora the Explorer, Will and Grace, and the only musical I not only enjoy but find any reason to bring up with Tococo, Chicago... In the film, she played Nikki, the first inmate Rocky speaks to in the prison. That casting was a cheeky nod to Cheetah's Broadway fame, including being the first to play Velma Kelly in the theater. Her stage acting earned her Tony nominations and wins for Bye Bye Birdie, Chicago, Merlin, The Rink, Nine, and The Visit, all eventually earning her a Lifetime Achievement Tony in 2018. Needless to say, as a dancer and performer, Cheetah was a stunner and looked nothing like a bulldog. It's just a noisy hole with his and all that Okay, side note real quick. When working on an episode, I read through the transcript and do my research before watching the episode for like the hundredth time. With Josh out and about the day I was writing and knowing how often I joke about my love of the film Chicago, I thought, what a perfect thing to have on while I work. After Googling and searching all four dozen streaming apps, there was no free version. Are you kidding me? All these apps, all these hostings of everythings, everything getting paid, you still have to charge me four bucks to watch a 20-year-old movie? Well, it left me feeling like this. For 
For Dorothy, it was walking up the five flights of stairs to her daughter's apartment that, when they got too hard to do without stopping, she first felt old. Well, this information is just terrifying to Blanche, who fears what may come of her body in 15 years, when she's Dorothy's age. The game has ended, and Sophia is up for another round. Dorothy isn't, so she suggests she play with her grandson, except he's not home. When Dorothy and Sophia went to the market, Blanche put her plan into motion by gifting the kids her tickets to the symphony. You know, what every 20-something wants to do when they're in Miami. Dorothy is surprisingly annoyed here. She's like, we told you to stay out of it. But not really. She told you guys to tell your kids to go hang out, and you were the weirdest with your I don't meddle talk. Which, what is that about? People have mothers that don't set them up with strangers or ask people to ask you out? I didn't even know that was possible. I guess Dorothy actually hates Sophia doing that and didn't want to make Michael feel the same way. Blanche pays no mind to Dorothy's concern. She just sent them out for a nice night, but Dorothy knows a setup date is never fun. But for Sophia, that was a way of life and death in Sicily. According to lifeinitaly.com, arranged marriages aren't illegal. The only exception is if the bride is in a vulnerable state or threats are involved. Forced or arranged marriages are still seen as a traditional honor. However, the practice tends to be brought upon young women who, even if they aren't threatened, can feel forced into the marriage out of fear of retaliation. Sophia continues about how she would protect herself from a hit in Italy and New York, that she always made a point to sit with her back to the wall in a restaurant. That's how you can see him coming. But she doesn't recommend it if you're in Newark, New Jersey. Their walls are sticky. Newark burn can confirm about Newark at the, <laughs> um, at the very least. That the, was our airport we went Yeah, the airport's right? a, just a total garbage hole full of hateful people. <laughs> and very expensive food. Ugh. Newark. Baby, come for the airport and leave. Leave for everything else. <laughs> Later that night, Blanche, who still isn't lying down in a corset with her feet in the air, is sitting at the table reading when Rose comes in with a grocery bag. How late is it that the kids are at a concert, but she's shopping? Why didn't she go with Sophia and Dorothy? Anyway, Rose shares her concern about Blanche not doing as the doctor ordered. While she has been doing it, but she is, shockingly, sick of being on her back. Rose's teal dress only adds to the time confusion when Dorothy comes into the kitchen in her light blue vampirist's nightgown. She's checking to see if the kids are back. Unaware of the date situation, Rose clarifies, Our kids? Leaving Dorothy with no option but to smartly reply, No, the Cats and Jammer kids. Created in 1897 by Rudolf Dirks, the comic strip The Cats and Jammer Kids had many authors and ran for 35 years, during which it was made into cartoons and a play. Rudolph left the publisher he was with soon after creating the comic, and he went on to create The Captain and the Kids, with very similar characters. The three bad boys of the Cats and Jammer clan were troublemakers who were always trying to pass the blame. While those kids were successful, The Captain and the Kids were even more so, getting Mel Blanc to voice the cartoon and even earning a spokesperson spot with Pepto-Bismol. My stomach don't feel so good. Yeah, too much to drink. Now you get some of our medicine. There's all kinds of medicine for the kids. But when it comes to tummy trouble, give out me the good-tasting one, pink Pepto-Bismol. I have to side with Blanche here. 
As Rose gets upset and even disappointed that anyone interfered with her precious Bridget's life and Dorothy agrees, Blanche is like, can everyone please chill out? I didn't set them up on a date. They're just two people who are simply going to a concert. She literally just found something for them to do so they wouldn't have to play cards. Besides, there's no need to worry. She heard them come home hours ago. What time is it? As Rose starts to leave to go say goodnight to Bridget, Blanche asks her to come back with the heating pad from her dresser. Bum, bum, bum. But more on that later. Once Rose's delicate ears are gone, Blanche opens up to Dorothy. She's dying. Not literally, but sexually. It has been an entire four days since she has been intimate. And it's all too much. Dorothy, queen of the dry spells, mocks her measly four days, joking that she's been marking it off on her naval ship's calendar. But this is no joke. Blanche might explode. Desperate for help, Blanche literally reaches for Dorothy, grabbing her arm while her eyes flutter out of frustration. With the same look of concern and shock you would give a dog humping your leg, Dorothy glances at Blanche while turning away, telling her there's nothing she can do to help her personally, so she should let go of her arm and get that look off her face. While she joked about going up Rose's skirt last week, I don't think that's a transferable offer on her end. Before Blanche can hop on Dorothy's lap, there's a cry of, Oh my God! from the hallway. It's Rose. She's gone into Blanche's room to get the heating pad. Hearing their friend call out, Dorothy books it to Blanche's room, and Blanche follows as fast as her little old body will let her. Getting into Blanche's door, we find Rose covering her face from the horrors of what's in Blanche's bed. It's Michael and Bridget, and they're naked. Oh my God, they've done the worst thing you could possibly do. I'll leave it to this iconic moment from America's Next Top Model to tell you. Just please tell me what you did. Tell me. It's the worst possible thing I can do. You had sex? That's right. These adults had consensual sex. My God, what is the world coming to? Now, there are a few issues. Okay, they've been home for hours. Were they just lucky that Blanche didn't need her room so they could silently bone? Did they just finish and they're lucky their parents didn't catch them in the middle of the act? Did they finish a while ago and they're just sitting with each other as if they aren't in someone else's bed at their mom's house? Guys, this moment really shows the generational differences that creep in every now and again. As progressive and open as the ladies are about sex, they're still weird and uptight about it. Also, who walks into the situation and literally walks into the situation? Why is Rose across the room? Wouldn't you close the door and be like, we'll talk in a few minutes? Anyway, the pervy ladies tell them to get out of the bed, but seeing as their clothes aren't near them, information that nearly sends Rose into a world of wool frenzy of horror at the idea that they are nude, which is normal, of course, except for when costumes are involved, according to Blanche. Then Sophia arrives. Again, they're just naked, in bed. Who knows what the protection situation was here? So, like, is he just sitting there with a jimmy hat on, desperate to get to the bathroom? Is she just sitting there needing the same? Like, give them some space. Anyway, Sophia marches right up to them, and while she might not remember the feeling of it, she knows the look of it. Even though Sophia doesn't take issue with her daughter dating and having relations out of wedlock, I'm not sure why she's so offended with Michael. I guess because he's young and hasn't been married yet? I don't know how Catholics work. 
Gigolo is an unusual case of a slang term for a woman being turned into a negative for a man. Starting from the French word for leg, juge, the word evolved into gigolo, which meant a dance hall woman or a dancing partner. Eventually, it became gigolo, a man, usually younger, who exchanges money or financial support for company-slash-sexual escapades. Sophia continues to berate her naked grandson, telling him he's embarrassed everyone, especially the dumb, chestless girl next to him. That is a bit harsh, Sophia. I guess not as harsh as saying, I'm ashamed to call you my grandson, which she actually says to him. Yeesh. Hopping on the mean train is Rose, who is equally upset. Blanche is the only reasonable one, pointing out that they're just two adults who went out and had a good time. Well, an okay time. There was too much wine involved. With too much alcohol of any kind, your brain signals to your genitals get all jumbly and make it hard to feel sensation, hence the joke of having them try again. The delivery of Rose's line, I don't think we should encourage them, in response to the joke about having them have another round, has always bothered me. Dorothy's sarcasm is obviously, as usual, not picked up by Rose, so she's extra serious when she says it. And then there's something with the timing, like the audience thought she was too serious or they cut to Blanche's line too quickly, but I always felt it should have gotten a laugh and instead it just falls as flat as Bridget's chest. Being rational, Blanche suggests they leave the kids to get dressed so they can have a discussion. They start to leave, but Rose is in such shock she needs a reminder to give them privacy. Her shock is coming from only having seen Bridget in bed with one other man before, Raggedy Andy. According to the Toy Hall of Fame, Raggedy Ann was created in 1915 when Johnny Gruel's daughter gave him a Raggedy, a.k.a. Scruffy, doll. After drawing a face on it, he named it Raggedy Ann. Johnny just so happened to be an illustrator, so he created children's books starring the doll. Within just a few years, the books and dolls were sold together, and they took off. It wasn't until 1920 that Anne's brother Andy came along. Together, the pair had adventures on the page, the screen, the stage, the radio, and in the hearts of children, earning them a spot in the Hall of Fame in 2002 for Anne and 2007 for Andy. Their inspiration was vast, even getting a titular song on Liza Minnelli's second album. Oh, Raggedy Ann, and Raggedy Andy had hair that was made from one little ball of yarn. Making a train of a body out of commission, an uptight mother, and a human eye roll, the ladies make their way to the living room. Well, Rose just can't believe this is happening. Just flat out cannot believe it. It's unbelievable. Just like the fact that Alan Thicke has a hit TV show. The late Canadian superstar Alan Thicke got his start hosting game and talk shows before landing the much-loved role as Dr. Jason Seaver on the 80s sitcom Growing Pains. He was known for being kind of, how would you say, Coco? Schmaltzy? I would say a schmaltzy creep. Mm. Fun fact, he dated Christy Swanson <gasps> when she was underage. If you find yourself in the thick of the night, oh, get out of there. Oh, speaking of in the thick of the night, did you know Alan Thicke was an 80s pop star? Turning her shock into anger, Rose points the finger at Blanche, saying because she meddled and sent them out, Michael was able to seduce her daughter. That seduction line catches Dorothy's ear. 
Why is the blame on him? She isn't even his type anyway. Exactly, says Rose. She's too good for him. Yikes. And thus begins one of the ugliest arguments in the series, one I'm shocked they're able to recover from. I don't know that I would be able to. Ignoring Blanche's attempt to change the subject to lemonade, Dorothy and Rose go at it. Yeah, she's too good for him. Just like Henry Kissinger, he doesn't have a job. Henry Kissinger was the Secretary of State from 1973 to 77. He worked with Nixon as a national security advisor, developing an unusual and secretive relationship with the president. Instead of trying to encapsulate the miles of information there is on him, I called my dad for a nutshell. He said, he was basically the Dick Cheney of the Nixon administration. They had some shady dealings, lied about involvement in Vietnam. He was just an all-around not good guy. Back to the heated argument in the living room. Names are being thrown. First by Rose. He's a loser who takes advantage of girls. Ouch. Dorothy pushes back. Well, Bridget moves faster than running back Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen played for the Los Angeles Raiders and Kansas City Chiefs in the 80s and 90s, respectively. Since I know literally nothing about football, I'll let his Wikipedia page tell you how fast he was. He was the only player to have ever won the Heisman Trophy, an NCAA championship, and a Super Bowl. And he also got an NFL and Super Bowl MVP. He is in the College and Professional Football Halls of Fame due to his running for 12,243 yards, scoring 145 touchdowns, and he was the first player to get more than 10,000 rushing yards and 5,000 receiving yards. Hopefully those numbers help you understand just how fast he was. I know they didn't help me or Rose. <laughs> to clarify, Dorothy lays it all out. Your daughter is a tramp because she slept with a man she knew for one day. Not that she's a good sport, like Blanche suggests. The word tramp had the original meaning of walking with heavy footsteps. It then went on to mean a person, maybe a houseless person, who traveled by foot. Then in the 1920s, something changed. Perhaps it was that women who were sex workers were walking on their feet? Calling a sexually promiscuous woman a tramp is almost an exclusively American term. Unsurprising, as we seem to always find ways to find more demeaning words for women, especially ones that enjoy sex. I never bother with people that I hate. That's why this chick is a tramp. Rose is right. That was too far, too mean. But Dorothy's right, too. That was too mean, too cruel. It's one thing to roast each other, but to call one another's children such horrible things? Oof. It's the next morning, and a tan-pant, sort of silky, bright blue top-wearing Dorothy has crossed paths with Blanche, who is in the kitchen in a white nightgown and her classic colorful robe. Before Blanche can get a good morning out, Dorothy informs her she is not speaking to her. Which, if you feel like you have to do the silent treatment, it's nice that you're just letting the person know. Making sure she's understanding the situation, Blanche asks if it's because of what happened with the kids. Physically incapable of giving a straight answer, Dorothy responds with, No, I'm upset Crockett and Tubbs, the characters from Miami Vice, are starting to wear darker colors instead of their classic pastel suits. Coming in the kitchen in a black dress, black hat, and black veil is Sophia. No, she's not introducing a new line of tennis wear. She's in mourning mourning the loss of her grandson. Last to join is Rose, in white pants, a purple shirt, and pink cardigan. She's silent, too, making her way to the fridge with a simple, yeah, I'm still mad. Somehow, in the wacky universe of this episode, Blanche is the one begging forgiveness, as if it's her fault they got in bed together, which is just nutty. 
That's like saying it would be her fault if she brought two dogs in and they ended up fighting. She didn't know, and she isn't responsible for their behavior. For crying out loud, it was just some tickets to a Henry Mancini tribute. Henry Mancini was one of the most well-known composers in film and television history. He had over 360 composer credits to his name, most of which came from the use of his iconic music for the Pink Panther. Starting with shows like Gunsmoke and Abbott and Costello in the 50s, he went on to make the music for Breakfast at Tiffany's, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Macmillan and Wife, Columbo, and Newhart. He also earned credits for his conducting for films like Mommy Dearest, The Great Mouse Detective, and one of my personal favorites, Wait Until Dark. Blanche then makes the most important point. It's not a big deal. It happens. Why, it even happened to her when she was going to finishing school, which is a privileged place for people to learn manners and social graces. I would sooner die than go to that, but I digress. So while she was at school, she hooked up with Bobby Joe after they shared a kiss at the Fine Manners Ball. Perhaps this is the same Bobby Billy Ben from before? Anyway, in the middle of the night, the door to her room opened and it was Miss MacGyver doing a bed check. Using the skills she learned in her manners class, Blanche waved to her teacher with her foot over Bobby's shoulder. As Dorothy and Rose try to even imagine what position was going on to allow for that, Blanche continues, She didn't care she was caught. She didn't care she was in trouble. She simply had to deal with those urges. While the story didn't help much, Blanche begs for the girls to talk to the kids, but only in a way that mends their relationship, not driving a wedge into it further. With that parenting advice, Sophia asks, What are you, Mr. Spock? Rose corrects her. You mean Dr. Spock? Eh, weird name, smart, big ears, same difference. Dr. Spock was the first pediatrician to use psychology to create parenting that allowed for understanding of the child and individualism. While he made some good points that allowed for less strict parenting, he was met with criticism for his theories sometimes not being medically tested and for pissing off the older generations that didn't like that he wanted people to be nice to their kids. Spock was a character on Star Trek that was originally played by the late Leonard Nimoy. And yes, they both had big ears. Live long, Tipao, and prosper. Live long and prosper, Spock. I shall do neither. I have killed my captain and my friend. Doctor, alien, or neither, Blanche is coming from experience. She should have been better when communicating with her kids. That's why, just like Sophia with anything from behind a veil, you don't see Blanche's kids at the house visiting. The girls finally hear her. They were upset with the kids and took out their feelings on each other. They hand-hug it out and are ready to move on. But I feel like there would need to be a bit more of a conversation and definitely better apologies after such an ugly fight. I mean, that was some trust-damaging language. Just like the stereotypes of Italians, Sophia can't get over it. No forgiveness, no forgetting, and she's going to grow some moles. When it comes to moles, it's not known if they are genetic. What is known is that people with more moles tend to age healthier, showing less common occurrences of conditions such as osteoporosis. Another thing known about moles, stress can play a factor in the progression of melanoma. So relax and don't hold those grudges. Finding Michael on the lanai playing his sax in his American-Canadian tuxedo, that's when instead of a denim jacket, it's a denim shirt, Dorothy joins but doesn't want to interrupt his playing. 
Okay, maybe she does. It's time for the most awkward conversation. Nearly in angry tears, Dorothy can't understand how her son could do something so awful to her. While Michael is dismissive of it, saying it just happened, Dorothy won't take that answer. Dandruff, the skin that falls off a dry scalp, that just happens. Dorothy then equates her parenting ability based on how casually her son views sex. No pressure there. She then adds salt to the wound, saying that his success is a reflection of her parenting, that if she had been a good mother, he would be a doctor, not playing it with Bridget. Apologizing again for his indiscretion, he says he just wasn't thinking about the consequences, an apology better than the girls gave each other and, frankly, too good for how insignificant his mistake was. Then, the plot whoopsie of all plot whoopsies. Dorothy tells Michael he needs to settle down because he's... 29 years old. Sound the alarms. Okay, so he's 29 and he's your oldest child. So he was who you were pregnant with as a teen when you went out with Stan. But wait, you guys were married somewhere between 39 and 42 years ago. So, um, what happened to that kid? I can only assume the creative team thought the struggles of a 40-something person were much more boring than the plot lines you could create for someone in their 20s. They also didn't think people would be obsessively watching this show 40 years later. So, you know, we just gotta roll with the punches and do the only reasonable thing. Ignore it? <laughs> no. We're gonna call it out and then create some fan fiction of who that other child was. Again, I think it's a generational thing. Dorothy was forced to grow up, never having her 20s, barely even having her teen years. Everything post-depression was about getting to work and selling your soul to buy a house and have some kids. But you would think, now that she's older, she would want him to live whatever life he wanted, the opposite of what she had. I guess some people's jealousy shows itself in weird ways. All of Dorothy's judgments and anger are coming from a place of love. Of course, her top priority is for Michael to be happy, but she also worries that his vagabond lifestyle will lead him to a life he looks back on with regret, which is nice and all, but she can't force him to live a life he doesn't want just to meet her needs. Besides, what is she to be embarrassed about? He's an overall decent guy who's honest and following his heart, begging his mother to accept him. She cries that she already has. They hug it out with apologies and tears, so now it's Sophia's turn, who has joined them on the lanai. She too wants him to beg for forgiveness. He doesn't exactly beg, but he apologizes and makes a deal to write more often and to call every week. But that won't work for Sophia. She has a life too, you know. She can't just be spending all her time on the phone. So they agree, every other week. Thank goodness they were able to make up. Sophia is sick of being covered in that veil. It's now Rose and Bridget's turn to make up. In the kitchen, in a yellow dress, is Rose, who is packing up Bridget's lunch in a fancy little wicker picnic basket. You just have a surplus of those lying around and can send them out the door like they're Tupperware? Bridget, in her floral skirt and bright pink sweater, joins her mom and asks for a conversation. Rose would rather ignore it completely and just accept the apology that wasn't said. Bridget won't tolerate her mother's avoidance, though. She starts to explain that she messes up, just like she did the other night, and it's okay. For Rose, it's just that she wanted her first time to be special, which seems extra wild that she thought her daughter was losing her virginity in a stranger's bedroom to a stranger. Of course, that wasn't the case. Her first time was special, four years ago. 
All of this information is too much for Rose to handle. She's a farm girl who doesn't need to know her daughter's sex life, but her daughter is begging for them to have a relationship that is that close. So Rose finds a compromise. How about matching outfits? That still won't cut it for Bridget. She is pushing her mom, but it's working. Rose finally agrees to work towards that kind of openness in their relationship. And now it's time for the kids to leave. So Bridget thanks the ladies for having her. Sophia corrects her. Don't you mean you thank my grandson for having you? At the door, Dorothy is waiting to tell Bridget goodbye, wearing a burnt orange shirt with a leaf design on it similar to the mugs over a yellow shirt. To her surprise, Michael comes out carrying his things. He's found a new music gig where ties aren't required. A dream job. So he's actually leaving too. Everyone hugs and kisses before Bridget suggests they share a cab. But nothing more. As the kids leave, Blanche arrives from the hallway wearing an azure blue scoop neck drop-waisted dress and she is ready to roll onto her back for a man. She is feeling better and isn't interested in doctor's orders. Her mental health is more important. Besides, who knows her body better than she does? Well, besides any man in Dade County that isn't connected to a respirator or a woman, Sophia's not wrong there. When it comes to romance, it's never a good idea to get your family involved. But if they insist, try to take a page out of Bridget's book. Vocalize your needs and desires for open communication. Being honest about who you are and the life you lead might scare some people away or have others judge you, but that's okay. That means they don't love you for you, and you don't need that. Parents, friends, uptight Catholic grandmothers should love the whole you. The slutty side, the fickle side, the side that leaves a saxophone next to the bed when making love. So let your true colors show so that those who love you can celebrate the rainbow of a person you are. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we talk survival skills after the ladies go on vacation. That is until a multi-shade of cream wearing Dorothy comes in from... Take that one again. (laughs) She rolled over and put her... Boy, this is hard. Apples and plums, players and plums, say it. What? I was just Apples and plums, players and fairs? Players and phlegms, I said. Players and phlegms? Players, phlegms. I don't know. I is just, that from something? It just came out of my mouth. Wow, that sounded like from a movie. Apples and plums, players and phlegms. Say it. <laughs> Say it again. Be the best actress there is. Phlegms, phlegms, phlegms. plums, players, phlegms. Do you want to be a player or a phlegm? Because right now you're a phlegm. A Rosa Rowe. But she stood on the counter, Norma Rowe. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it could just be bums, could just be idiots, fools in your life. Let's oh yeah, on. let's go goof on go those bums. Prank people in the park. Yeah, let's yeah, let's say it's that. Let's hope call it's it that. bum goofing. <laughs> Ew. That's something else. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Always be my sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always be my sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sisters. Wow, you've changed. You're you're not, you're not Shandy. <laughs> <laughs>